Peter writes this message of hope about 30 years after experiencing the risen Jesus. And he's writing to some people who are suffering. And he acknowledges that through his epistle in 1 Peter. In, in chapter 2, he talks about harsh slave masters and how some of them are enduring that hardship. In chapter 3, he talks about unbelieving spouses because some of them have come to faith in Jesus, but their spouses haven't, their husbands or wives. Um, in chapter 4, he talks about the ridicule and the insults that they endured. And in uh, chapter 4 also, he talks about the heavy suffering and persecution that they are enduring and that they will still experience. And I want to ask a question today. How do we have power in times of immense stress and anxiety to produce the fruit of the Spirit and to have lives that are productive for the kingdom of God in the midst of suffering? You see, Scripture doesn't ease our burden by saying, um, you know, now when you're suffering, don't worry. Just look to yourself and look after yourself and just get into a corner and it'll be okay. It says, in the midst of suffering, the challenge is to live a Christ-like life that will draw those around you to the light, to Jesus. Peter writes these words, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth, born again, into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. What is a living hope? A living hope. And how does it take hold of our hearts? How does it empower us to live and to love in the midst of hardship? What is a living hope? Well, I want to start with what a living hope is not. Um, And for that, I'm going to go back 25 years again because I brought Brenda to Cape Town under false pretenses. I'm a guy who likes surprising my wife, then my girlfriend. And so I said, let's go down to Cape Town. I want to run two oceans. Um, And, you know, I'd run two oceans before. I wanted to run it again. So um, on the 11th of April, 1998, I ran two oceans. But the night before, I proposed to Brenda. And my mind wasn't really on the two oceans. I tried to make her think that it was. I deceived her slightly by making it all about the two oceans. But actually, I was setting up, along with our friend Brett and my cousin Jonathan, for this big proposal. And you could say, when I got to the start of the marathon, I was nervous because I was undertrained. My body wasn't fit for the two oceans. I wasn't really ready for it. I'd been much more focused on producing this song, this proposal, this ring, saving for the ring, you know, all these things. And... I remember thinking, I hope that I finish this race. But my hope was not a living hope. My hope was this kind of, I'm not sure if I'm going to make it. Because I really am not well trained. Someone came up to me after the last service and said, so did you make it? And the answer is yes, I actually made it to the finish line that day. It's like... Nikki coming to me and saying, Dad, I really hope my teachers aren't going to give me any more homework today because I'm so overwhelmed with work at the moment. It's not a certain hope. It's not a living hope. It's a bit like me saying to you, 
I really hope ESCOM will stop load shedding tomorrow, once and for all. It'll be finished. It's, it's a nice hope, but it's not based on anything solid. The 19th century Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon, described a living hope like this. He said, it's called a living hope. A living hope, because it's imperishable. It can't die. Other hopes fade with withering flowers. The hopes of the rich, the boasts of the proud, all of these will die as a candle will die when it flickers out. The hope of the greatest monarch of England has been crushed before our eyes. He set up a standard of victory too soon and has seen it trailed in the mire, the mud. There is no unwaning hope beneath the changeful moon. The only imperishable hope that we have is that which climbs above the stars and fixes itself upon the throne of God and the person of Jesus Christ. He's saying there's no other hope that you can, put, you can trust, you can put your, all your money on, you can bet completely on, other than hoping in Jesus Christ, in this universe. And Peter doesn't just call this a hope. He talks about a living hope. It's the opposite of a dead hope. Maybe you've had hopes that have died or that have produced little or no fruit. Something that is living is productive. It's fruitful. And that's what it's like with a living hope. It's like James says, a living faith shows itself in works. It outworks itself in your life. And a living hope is the same. It's productive in the fruit of the Spirit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. These things are things that come from being centered on Christ on a living hope that he is alive. Later in 1 Peter, in verse 13, Peter shows that he doesn't see this kind of hope as, as just some sort of wishful thinking, like, I hope I'll finish two oceans today. Did any of you run two oceans today? I know if you were really fast, you would have been done hours ago. <laughs> um, or yesterday, anyone? No? Okay. So we're letting those ones sleep today. These are the fit ones who made it to church. <laughs> we made it. So Peter says, put all your hope, in verse 13, all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed in the world. That's from the New Living Translation. Put all your hope here, he says. That's not an unswerving, that's not, that's not a, a fading hope, that's not an uncertain hope. It's a certain hope that says, put all your hope, put all your eggs in one basket in this resurrected Jesus. He doesn't mean for us to wish for the return for Jesus, not knowing if he really will come or if he won't. And be uncertain. No, the return of Jesus was a, meet, a matter of complete confidence to Peter, to John, to those eyewitnesses. All the gospel writers, and Paul too, were completely confident of the resurrection of Jesus. In other words, that Jesus Christ is alive today. That is a living hope. But secondly, how does a living hope, this idea of a living hope, take hold of my heart, take hold of your heart. How does it, how does it do that? In verse 3, I just remembered it was Wendy who was the someone who asked me <laughs> if I made it to the finish line. 
Our memory works like that. Um, in verse 3, Peter writes, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. How does a living hope take hold of our hearts? He has given us birth into this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There's something about the fact that Jesus was raised to life, which we celebrated last week, and we continue celebrating throughout the year. In other words, we can have this hope because we have been born again. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, then you have been born again, born from above, rebirth. And if you haven't, this is the glorious opportunity which awaits you when you speak to God in a gentle voice and invite him to come into your life. But there's a 2,000-year gap between this actual resurrection happening and me putting my faith in Jesus Christ. How do I hold on to and maintain this resurrection being effective in my life today? Peter says in verse 23, You were born again not of perishable seed. Like um, when you're born of your mom and dad, you're born of a seed that's perishable. You're going to die one day. All of us are going to die one day. But you were born of imperishable seed. That's when you're born again of the Holy Spirit and you have an eternal life with God through the living and enduring word of God, he says. You've been born again, firstly he says through the resurrection, but then now he says you've been born again because of the living and enduring word of God. How do these two match up? How does the resurrection Make this hope come alive in my heart. And how does this enduring and living word of God make living hope come alive in my heart? Well, the living and enduring word is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news that he is alive. Or as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus died for our sins. He was buried. That he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. This is the good news. And it's according to this good news, this word of God, these scriptures that have been passed down through the last 2,000 years, that's how the gap is closed. That is how we have the living hope. Because you can't have this hope unless you've heard the good news. You've got to hear it with your own ears. You've got to receive it with your own heart. And that's how that resurrection becomes effective 2,000 years later in your life and mine. They work together. So we have the eyewitness accounts of people like Mary Magdalene, who we spoke about last week, of Peter and John and Thomas, we read about today. All the disciples who saw Jesus with their own eyes, we have eyewitness accounts. The grave was empty. They did not steal his body. Jesus is alive. And that's why Paul, in describing the gospel, what is this gospel that we we carry and we pass down through the ages. He says that Jesus appeared to Cephas, to Peter, and the twelve, and then to 500 disciples at one time, most of whom are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. 500 people, can you imagine, that's this place packed, and standing room only, 500 people saw the risen Jesus with their own eyes. He was with them in 
one time, in one occurrence. That many people don't have the same dream or the same illusion. That many people were passing on the message by word of mouth initially and they wrote down this gospel. Living hope takes hold of our hearts by hearing a credible testimony to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. When you first heard the good news, somebody shared a credible testimony that Jesus is alive and he loves you and he's got good news for your life. If you've been part of the way that God has brought others into the kingdom, then you have shared that news also. And people have received a living hope because you were faithful. But this news of the resurrection and the eyewitness accounts is also a declaration, loud and clear for the world. If Jesus was risen from the tomb, that means he is alive and he died for my sins. He died for my sins and he's alive. He's alive and he died for my sins. Peter put it this way. Jesus also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. To bring you and me to God. He was put to death in the body, but he was made alive in the spirit. And one theologian, John Piper, describes the living hope he has in the gospel like this. He says, this is how a 2,000-year-old resurrection reaches my heart and begets hope. It certifies to me that because Jesus bore my sins on the cross, God is for me and not against me. The resurrection is a loud and clear message to you and to me today that God is for you. He's not against you. It declares to us that this Jesus who loved me and gave himself for me is alive and present and caring at every moment of my life. Thank you, Jesus, John Piper says. Thank you, Jesus. Can you and I say with John, thank you, Jesus? Thank you, Jesus. Isn't it amazing? That he bore the weight of my sin and my shame and my pain. He died for it, but also that he's alive, that he's overcome those things so that I can hold on to and live out of a place of a living hope in him. A living hope that says he's alive. Well, I'm practical, so I want to know how can I hold on to this practically? How, how do I live a life of love out of a place of living hope when life is not so cool, when it's not so good? Peter writes in chapter 1, verse 22, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for one another, love one another deeply from the heart. From the heart. Love one another deeply. In other words, now that you have this living heart in you, let it have its outworking in your life in how you love one another deeply. Firstly, your brothers and sisters in Christ, but then also the world, this world, because God loves this whole world. You see, hope empowers love by pushing out 
our greed and selfishness, self-pity. When we're anxious about tomorrow, we don't move towards generosity and service and waiting to hear God's voice. When we're anxious, we close down into ourselves more and more. I'm going to get very real, and I haven't even asked my wife, but I think she's going to be okay with this. Last night, in the middle of the night, I was awake, and I was anxious, and I had many things on my mind. And then I heard this voice, are you awake too? I said, are you also thinking about lots of things? She said, yeah, too many to say. We lay there, awake at two or three in the morning. When we're anxious about tomorrow, our first reaction isn't to run closer to God. It's sometimes to draw closer to ourself, maybe to self-pity, maybe to exploiting others, maybe to our addictions, to food, the phone, the TV. But again, Peter says in chapter 5, cast your anxiety and your burden on Jesus. Get real and practical in the moment and take that anxiety to the Lord in prayer. Speak to him. It says, cast your anxiety on Jesus because he cares for you. He really cares and he's with you. Psalm 42, I think it's David, speaks to his own soul. We can do this too. We can speak to ourselves. You might think I'm crazy or you don't want to be crazy. But David says, why, my soul, are you so downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. That's the invitation to get practical in the moment of fear and anxiety, where that living hope doesn't feel so living. It's to speak to your soul, to speak to your spirit. Say, why so downcast? Put your hope in God again. Remember what he's done for me. Remember what he's done for his people. Put your hope in God. Hope empowers love by pushing out greed and self-pity. But secondly, we can get practical by imitating the one we want to be like. Children are quite good at this. And if you notice, there's someone they love on YouTube or in the media, singer. They sing a bit like them. They maybe talk a bit like them. They imitate them. There are things that that come through, but it's not just children, it's all of us. We imitate those that we respect and want to be like or honor. Let Jesus Christ be the one that we most want to respect and honor with our life. Set your eyes on him. Let him be the one you most want to be like. He's the one I most want to be like. But I forget. So I remind myself, set your eyes on Jesus. Because when we do, when our eyes are fixed on him, it's incredible, but our words, our actions, our life start to look more like him. Isn't that funny? The end of the gospel reading, the end of John's gospel, John says all of this is written so that you would believe in Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name.
If you have put your faith in Jesus, you have a living hope. You can put your trust in Him. And let that living hope produce love through you, in you. But your eyes need to be on Jesus. You need to remind yourself, no, don't look there, look here. At St. John's, we have put our values or our vision before us and said we want to be um, united in our diversity. We can't be united um, because of our diversity. Our diversity has the danger of pushing us apart. We are here because of the resurrection of Jesus. We are the resurrection people. And that's what draws us together in diversity and how we can be united. But our eyes have to be fixed on him. And so another part of our vision is that we are Christ-centered. I almost think we could say we are united in diversity because we are Christ-centered. We become united. We work together as one body when our eyes are fixed on him. We become like a family of families that is hospitable and warm and open to the world around us because our eyes are on Jesus, not on unity for the sake of unity or trying to make our diversity work for us. But the church is diverse because we see Jesus and he brings us together and makes us a new family. And we're missional because we're centered on him and he is a missional God. He sent Jesus and now he sends us. And in that first occurrence, when he stood before the disciples in the room, he said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. Now you go. He goes on to say, Make disciples. Bring people to know and to obey the things I've taught you. Look to Jesus and see that living hope grow larger and larger in your heart. Let us pray. Maybe you could just echo this prayer or something like it in your hearts this morning. But first, Holy Spirit, won't you just show us where we stand this morning? Is all our hope in you? Or are there fears, anxieties, distractions that pull our gaze away from Jesus Christ, from your mission, from your family, from what you are doing in us? Just allow God to show you what's happening in your own heart, in your own life right now. Come, Holy Spirit. And if you can agree with these words, maybe echo this prayer or something like it in your own heart. Lord Jesus, I believe in my heart that you were raised from death. I believe that your resurrection guarantees that your death was sufficient to pay for all my sins. Therefore, Jesus, you are for me and not against me. 
you are alive today and with me by your Holy Spirit to help me forever. And I pray that you will help me to hope fully in your promises so that I can be free from the greed or the self-pity that come from fear and that I might be driven to imitate your love and obey all that you have taught me in your word. Jesus, please give me in these times of stress and anxiety the power to be joyful and to love because of this living hope that is alive in me. Amen.